Spencer Bell for the Two in a Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it's occurring, in this case, on a Thursday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. What follows? As he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors in this edition of it to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, and apropos uh, mostly of an offhand comment Dave Cameron makes at the beginning of the program regarding a panel discussion he attended featuring Fangraphs contributor and lawyer Nathaniel Grove, a, a conversation regarding international free agency, the prospect of an international draft, and Dave Cameron's alternative proposal to the hypothetical international draft. To say that the conversation is free-flowing would be accurate. Also to say that Dave Cameron says this... I think this is a really tough nut to crack. ...would be accurate as well. Once again, for the listener's benefit, here's that comment in which Dave Cameron discusses cracking nuts. I think this is a really tough nut to crack. Before we crack open the metaphorical nut, which is this edition of Fangraph Study, it's time for me once again to present the sponsor's message. Have I mentioned Draft or the Draft app before on this program? It's possible. In the event, however... Uh, do you have ignored my other messages uh, regarding that fine product? Allow me to inform you about it. Perhaps you're familiar with DraftKings or FanDuel. Those are daily fantasy sports games. Draft is similar in that it is also a daily fantasy sports game. Different, however, in that one is not always reading about it and its legal implications. And also in that uh, it is the first such game designed exclusively for mobile devices. After downloading it and registering in the Draft universe... You can challenge you can challenge friends or internet strangers to fantasy sports games. For example, currently in basketball and hockey, professional basketball, professional hockey. You conduct a snake draft, each select five players, those players accrue fantasy points. Whoever has the most points wins. Perhaps you've selected to wager American currency on the outcome of this game. You will have gained an amount of money roughly equal to although not entirely equal to, but roughly equal to the amount that you wagered to begin with. How do you get this fine product, you might wonder? Well, if you have the iOS operating system on your device, go to the App Store. If you have an Android operating system, go to Google Play or something like Google Play. And benefit somehow, somehow that I don't understand, benefit Fangraphs Audio in the process. Okay, that is the conclusion of the sponsor's message. And with it comes this reminder. What you're listening to is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing Editor Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. You're doing good, you said. Yeah, why? You weren't just saying, you're not just pretending or anything. Well, you know, I'm doing as good as uh, someone talking to you can be. Yeah. You, uh, I saw you uh, announced via Twitter.com, social media platform Twitter.com recently, that you were going to a lecture or something like this with uh, uh, Fangraphs contributor Nathaniel Grow. Less of a lecture and more of a, well, supposed to be a panel discussion, turned mm-hmm. into probably three people uh, sitting next to each other talking for some period of time, not necessarily about the same things. Uh, but yes, Nathaniel Grove was asked by Wake Forest Law School to come speak at a sports law symposium they gave last Friday. And he spoke about kind of international issues, the international, uh, signing issues in Major League Baseball, the potential for, for a draft, what that could mean in other countries. Um, and, uh, did a good job. Hey, that's interesting. 
that you're mentioning that, I'm guessing it's somewhat related because you've written a couple of articles of late uh, regarding um, the sort of various rules dictating how uh, international players ought to be acquired by major league teams. Yeah, it's the most broken part of baseball. And I think, like, you know, baseball, Major League Baseball would probably agree with this assessment. This isn't us just, like, taking pot shots at them. Like, I think, you know, we can, we can differ maybe on whether trying to implement a major, an international draft is a good idea. They, Rob Manfred clearly thinks it is. I'm not as convinced, but I think they, everyone agrees that the system they have now uh, is about as bad a system as you. So can. what's what is wrong with the system right now? I mean, it, I and I and even from what little I know, um, I, I'm willing to accept the premise. Uh, what what is the what is wrong with it? Well, I think so. It was designed in order to try and mimic a draft in that they took the slotting pool allocations from the regular domestic draft and assigned those kind of not the same numbers but the same idea. To the international draft. The problem is because they're not firm limits. It didn't take teams very long to realize that the incentives are actually aligned. That if you're going to go over your pool, which uh, the return on investment suggests that it is, it's worth it for a guy. You know, when you know Anman Kata or one of these guys becomes available, it's worth it to just ignore the pool allocation, take the penalty that Major League Baseball put in place, and then once you're past the penalty, there's no further line to stop you from just continuing on. Uh, ad nauseum. So what the Dodgers have done this this signing period is uh, spent, I think, $92 million is the last um, uh, figure kind of es- estimate. Yeah. Uh, that includes the 100% tax that they have to pay. So, so yeah, so so you mentioned the tax. Yeah. Um, and you also talk about aligning the incentives or disincentives, I suppose. Uh, one of them is you pay 100% tax, yeah? Yeah. On, after a certain figure. Right. I think Major League Baseball was hoping that the loss of two years of the ability to sign high-end players, you're, you're capped at $300,000 per player for the next two years if you go over your pool limit, and the 100% tax would act as essentially a disincentive to uh, break the limits, and it, they would essentially act as like a de facto cap. But teams have figured out that it's just far more valuable to go over your cap by a dramatic amount in one year, take the penalties, and then kind of spread your money around the next couple of years, in part because you can also sell some of your pool money. So if you have a you know significant size pool that you can't necessarily use because you're penalized, you can just trade that for other assets. So um, Major League Baseball system hasn't necessarily worked to constrain international spending like they had hoped, and it hasn't served to stop certain franchises who are well off and have much better cash positions from just hoarding all the best players, which is why the Dodgers have signed basically every international kid you've ever heard of for the last few years. Now, there, there are certain – humans are um, – well, humans are dummies a little bit, yeah? Um, or they're well-meaning dummies. And uh, I think one thing that happens for humans, right, is in attempting to address one problem, uh, we can create other problems. So, for example, I don't know what the species are, but you always hear about uh, in order to eradicate a um, – a difficult species from one place, they introduce a, a second species. Right. But that ends up like killing all of the cats or something like that. I think right? I saw something on Reddit the other day that was like Australia had a problem with some kind of rat. So they brought in like, I don't know, a possum or something. But yeah. one of them was like 
nocturnal. So then, like, the, the, the thing they brought in after <laughs> the thing just slept during the time that thing was out. And then they had this, like, nocturnal beast that no one was hunting that either. So they essentially doubled their problem because <laughs> the animal they brought in didn't, wasn't awake during the time that they needed it to kill the other animal. Yeah, uh, right. And, uh, so, and which, which brings up something, right? Is that there are occasionally oversights of failure to account for all the potential variables, right? And you're never going to account for all of them, but important ones, uh, like when the animal is awake and asleep, <laughs> yeah. this is really right. So when, when Major League Baseball is uh, crafting its rules, um, they must think – they know that a number of organizations and certainly those that are led by the kinds of people who have attended uh, you know, business schools in the Ivy League um, are immediately going to examine those rules to attempt to exploit them and you know, sometimes to better and sometimes to less good effect – Mm, but uh, so, so they must have had an idea that um, teams would scrutinize these these laws. But you, you're suggest you're suggesting that it um, that they underestimated teams' willingness to um, to pay the penalty relative to the the benefits of acquiring these sorts of talents. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's an underlying issue here that maybe Major League Baseball didn't anticipate and probably wasn't so easy to anticipate because I don't think we saw it coming either. I think this was a kind of a structural shift in the game after uh, kind of the influx of PED testing has, I think, significantly changed the aging curve. I wrote about this last week where the game is getting younger and younger and younger and the ratio of productive players beyond age 30 are really falling quite fast. And teams have picked up on this, I think, and have really quickly started to reallocate their funds towards younger players. And because of the six-year service time limit that is often really seven years, if you can play the Super 2 game a little bit, uh, and the service time manipulation, um, it's very hard to allocate free agent money to young players. And so teams kind of like the Dodgers, that are the best example of this, have you know a $300 million payroll and essentially endless resources. They can spend money wherever they want, but they have chosen not to spend it on Major League free agents for the most part and not on Major League veterans. They're not really trading for expensive players either. What they've done is said the highest return on investment for our franchise, both short-term and long-term, is for us to funnel as much money as possible into acquiring young players. And the only real way in Major League Baseball to acquire young players is to blow up your international draft uh, budget because they've made it more difficult to do this in the in the domestic draft. So by essentially blowing up your pool and spending as much as possible on the international front, uh, the Dodgers are uh, effectively allocating their resources most effectively to get as much young talent into their system as possible. And that's kind of the currency in trade right now is young, controllable talent who's still productive from you know 20 to 28 or whatever. We're not in the day and age where we were 10 years ago where you could go sign some 32-year-old player to a four-year contract and expect him to produce for three of those four years. Now, when you're signing a free agent, you're kind of hoping you get like one or two good years before he declines into something. And, and I think that's one of the reasons the opt-outs have become such more uh, in vogue this winter is that teams are like, hey, look, you know, if there's any chance we can get out of these long-term deals, we're okay with it, even if it's not a great idea from our perspective. So with teams shifting their desire to, to allocate resources towards young players and Major League Baseball having closed off avenues, uh, other avenues to do it, the international area became kind of the last uh, position for teams to kind of flex their financial muscle and and just use dollars to acquire talent. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you, you mentioned that there seems to be a double penalty for signing free agents now, right? Not only are you paying uh, fair market value for them or what you know what the market ought uh, dictate, but you you're also probably signing a player 
um, who is more likely that this same player um, is probably more likely past his peak now than he would have been 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, if the aging curves have changed, which I think there's a decent amount of evidence to suggest that they have, and players are peaking earlier than ever, and teams are becoming maybe more disciplined in when they're promoting players, we're seeing fewer guys called up at 19 or 20, uh, so you're getting, you know, kind of more delayed players, uh, or free agency is, is being delayed back into their later 20s or early 30s. Uh, teams are signing early extensions that are locking up star players into their 30s and, and buying out several of their free agent years. Um, you get a weaker free agent class that's older and is likely to decline sooner. And then, you know, that's kind of always been Major League Baseball Players Association's bread and butter is guys who get to free agency will inflate the dollars for everyone else, and that will drive up salaries. And teams are saying, look, this is an inferior way of building a roster. We don't want to do this anymore. Um, and so I think no one really anticipated the shift in the aging curve. And maybe we should have, but I, I don't know anyone that was calling this t- 10 years ago. So not trying to toot our own horn or say that baseball missed something obvious because I don't think this was so easy to see coming. But it is a dramatic shift in how teams value talent. And so you can set up as many rules and laws and, you know, pseudo caps as you want. But as long as the incentive remains for teams to get as many young players as possible, that's what they're going to try and do. And it's very hard to plug every possible hole uh, I think realistically baseball and the players association are going to have to try and come up with a new approach and say, if teams are valuing young players much more highly than they used to relative to veteran players, what does that mean for our pay scale? What does that mean for our service time ideas? What does that mean for uh, the league minimum? How do we want to go about approaching uh, so that the alignments of the team's incentives to acquire players are also where the money uh, the Players Association wants the money to go. Yeah, well, I was, I was going to ask about the, the union, their feelings on this. Uh, I know I th- recently either August Fagerstrom or Craig Edwards, one of the two, I believe, uh, wrote a piece looking at uh, free agent classes that have disappeared, essentially. Yeah. Because, uh, of course, it's become much more popular now for teams to extend uh, their, their talented cost control players uh, into free agency. And... Um, uh, and as a result, there are, there are a number of, uh, you know, each year now there there's a whole class of players who would have been uh, who would have been entering free agency, would have been entering the free <clears throat> the market, uh, but who are, you know are remaining with the teams that um, originally uh, signed and developed them. And so as a result, as you say, like uh, we have a bunch of players who are probably receiving something less than than market value because of that. And um, well, I guess it, right as you mentioned, it doesn't necessarily depend who specifically is getting the money, but there's generally um, at the heart of the matter, you, you'd like to see a league in which players uh, who are responsible for the product on the field are receiving something roughly, you know, r- roughly akin to 50% of of the revenues. Yeah, I mean, I think the trouble for the Players Association is that historically they've just been able to rely on kind of the irrationality of front offices to say, we have a, whatever, $150 million payroll, we have $45 million in available space this winter, let's just go spend that on whatever we can spend that on, uh, regardless of whether it's the most efficient way of doing that or not, like, it's the easiest path of least resistance. Like, right, and the, and, and the accounting is, I think you've mentioned this before in the program, or at least in person, the accounting is uh, remarkably rigid, right? So you have, you have, as you say, something like you have $45 million to spend this year. And there's no real sense of, oh, can we just, there's no one really good available right now. Can we spend 30 now and push the, 
pushed uh, another 15 to next year and spend 60. That, that doesn't really exist, yeah? No, teams run on annual budgets uh, for the most part, and they're not allowed to roll over savings. And, and you know, if they end up uh, being profitable one year, the owners are just going to go buy a bigger boat. So there's no real incentive for the front offices to not spend their available cash, um, which, you know, used to just lead to teams saying, okay, Chris Davis is available or Ryan Howard's available or whoever it is, and we have X amount of dollars, and this is the best guy we can get. Let's just go get it. Now I think we're seeing maybe a little more interesting thought process in front offices, and teams are saying, okay, I have $40 million to spend, and I don't really like any of these free agents, so I'm going to go take on a bad contract like Aaron Hill or something, and I'm going to get prospects who might help me significantly more in the future than this declining player who I might not need uh, or who might not you know, push me over the top. And so I'm going to look for some other way to kind of spend the money that I have, or I'm going to go convince my owner to blow our international budget, or I'm going to um, make some other kind of transaction that will uh, allow me to acquire a young major league player by taking on, you know, an overpaid player at the same time. And so um, I think we're seeing teams kind of flex their, flex their options and look for alternatives. And that's kind of uh, leaving the free agent market as a, um, you know, a less desirable way for teams to spend money. And, and so I think from the players association standpoint, they're not going to be able to rely on, this old idea of teams will just spend whatever they have available on free agents, and that will inflate everybody else's salary because that's not how baseball teams are operating anymore. You brought the example of the Aaron Hill situation, right? And uh, I think this happened last year with Brunson Arroyo too. Does that right. sound right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where the um, where Atlanta accepted Brunson Arroyo, but also got Tuki Toussaint at the same time. Right. Um, it, that that to me, from what little I know of how basketball contracts work, um, and there's a lot of sort of ar- arcane. Um, in sort of specifics regarding there was the mid-level exceptions, etc. Um, this seems to be how a lot of uh, basketball trades occur, though, where you have teams who, where, where bad contracts actually become valuable. Right. Uh, why is that, though? Why? Is it for so the it, same principles? No. So in basketball, because you have a strict salary cap, expiring contracts are super valuable because it leads to future uh, – cap space that essentially like say you want to sign Kevin Durant this coming off season the only way to do that is to make sure you have enough money coming off the books at the exact time you want to sign the free agent that you're trying to align ex- the end of contracts with you know the amount of money you're going to need to sign the next guy so if you're trying to sign Kevin Durant this winter you need 30 million dollars coming off your books this winter and the only real way to do that is to trade guys who are under contract for multiple years for a guy who's only under contract through the end of the season, essentially erasing the longer-term contract from your book so that you can reallocate that money to the one-star player. Because in the NBA, all that really matters is the one-star player. Right, and and that's also important, though, right, because I think there are – there are also spending minimums. Uh, you have to be within a certain percentage of the uh, of the, the Correct. Cap, they, have a, right? they have a cap and a floor system, yeah. Right, and so that's why it's important to have a bloated contract that's expiring. Yeah, I mean, like for yeah. rebuilding teams, they have to spend some amount of money, but you don't necessarily want to spend it in long-term commitments because then those things uh, are harder to move. So if you just continue signing like overpaid one-year deals, then you always have these trade assets because teams are always looking to trade for expiring contracts. Okay, right. So, so there is there. I guess there are some similarities, right? In the sense that there's some value to to a contract that's expiring because it has some value to somebody, um, and it could get you Tuki Toussaint at the same time, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a new thing in baseball. It's not necessarily so much that teams are trying to align their free agent money at the same time. It's a different incentive. It's uh, if you're a rebuilding team 
and you have an option, like say you're the Phillies or the Brewers or, you know, one of these teams this winter, and you say, I can spend $6 million on a mediocre relief pitcher because that's what, or, you know, a platoon outfielder is 33 or something. A guy who's just not going to move the needle for my franchise at all, or I can spend $6 million on Aaron Hill and in the process get a, you know, 18-year-old shortstop prospect who might turn into a very good player in five years. Like, there's a good chance he won't ever be anything, but there's, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15% chance that I just got a future all-star uh, for taking on $6 million in Aaron Hill. There's almost no chance that the way you spend that money in free agency is going to give you the same kind of long-term return. So um, teams, instead of they're not necessarily in baseball trying to align like when contracts expire so they can go sign free agents. They're just saying, why spend on a, you know, no upside short term free agent boost when I can take that same amount of money and essentially buy a prospect from another team that needs some cash in order so they can go sign some mediocre middle reliever. All right. I want to return to the, this issue of international signing and, uh, you know, best and worst case scenarios for player acquisition generally uh, and certainly international specifically. Uh, I remember Kylie McDaniel. Do you remember him, Kylie yeah, McDaniel? I do remember him. Yeah, at some point in the not distant past, when he was still writing for Fangrass.com, he um, he addressed the issue of, of course, the teams were never supposed to, were never expected to outspend their their pools by the degree to which they have. Right. right. Yeah. So they're being taxed 100% on those overages, and um, but. And then I think when Kylie wrote about it, there was the question of where all of this money was going. Yeah. And at some level, if I remember correctly, it was somehow hurting the union or players or somehow something like this. What, what it is, go, what it is goes happening? into essentially with a slush fund for the, and the commissioner's discretion and how they could use it. And I think uh, according to Kylie and kind of to the people he talked to when he wrote the post, um, the idea was that the fund was never going to exceed like $5 million. It was going to be a small little uh, reserve that maybe the, the league could use to, you know, build academies in other countries or try and promote the international game or, you know, maybe they would just distribute it to the owners, but it wasn't really ever laid out in the CBA. Right. It's like but, when you swear, right? And your mom makes you put yeah, a dollar in the cup. Exactly. And then you could buy pizza with it at some right. point. It's more the jar of quarters that you've just like been throwing quarters into forever and ever and ever. And all of a sudden you have $10,000 in quarters and you're like, oh, I should go to Coinstar and they'll charge me 95% and then I'll have five bucks and Coinstar will make a lot of money. Um, That's how they do it? Yeah. Uh, coin, don't use those coin machines. Those things are total ripoff. I guess not. Can, can, you can go to banks, can't you? Yes, right. Yeah, banks <laughs> will not charge you an arm and a leg and they will yeah. give you cash. Uh, but I think they don't like it if you come in with like $10,000 in quarters. No, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of the same thing in baseball. Like, this fund is now really large and – no one really knows what the league is going to do with it. It's not spelled out in the CBA what they have to do with it, and they haven't ever publicly said, like, yeah, this is what we're going to do with all this tax money we've collected. So now the commissioner's office just has this huge slush fund of cash that um, is unknown in terms of uh, what it's going to go to. But, like, in theory, they could use that to – I don't know if, 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 if they would benefit from paying more lawyers, but essentially they now have resources to institute whatever sort of plan they would like to. Yeah, I don't think baseball is hurting for lawyers. Like, I don't think that has like an efficiency where they're like, we're a nine and a half billion dollar industry, but we can't afford attorneys. Uh, you know, I think I, I, it would be interesting to have like a poll on Fangraphs and be like, what should the commissioner's office do with this, whatever, fifty million dollars, hundred million dollars, how much is in there? Yeah. Uh, you know, I would suggest they should buy Fangraphs like for the hundred percent of the fund. Yes, like, whatever's in there, uh, we will accept it in full. Do we have Class B shares? Uh, I, don't know. I don't actually know. Do you have Class B shares? I want to get some. One time I was on the phone and Appleman mentioned Class B shares, but I really got to hold hold him to it, I think. 
Yeah, I don't know what kind of shares you have. <laughs> um, I'll tell Jake with that for a minute. I yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. Let's let's have an HR uh, conference call on our next podcast. Yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what can you what can you provide for us, Appleman? <laughs> um, so so we have the areas, we have the pools. Now, some of this is relevant. As you mentioned, uh, Nathaniel Groh was speaking about this. We also have the situation uh, this past week with the the allow me to mispronounce the foreigner's name, uh, the Guriels. Yeah, Guriel. Guriels, right? Yulieski, yeah, uh, yeah. part of Generation Y, uh-huh. and then Lord Guriel, who one assumes is. Uh, I think it's Lourdes, but yeah. Oh, Lourdes, yeah. Well, there's a there's a place in France, Lord. Uh, spelled anyway, Lourdes. That's fine. The uh, uh, so w- one of them is quite is quite good. Yeah. Yeah, Yulieski. Yeah. Yulieski is quite good. What do we know about Lourdes? Uh, not as good. Young, yeah. much younger. He's 22. Yulieski is 31. So there's a, almost 10 year gap between them. Uh, Lourdes is more of a kind of a toolsy prospect who has not performed as well as his brother has in Cuba. Mm-hmm. I mean, his brother is the best player in Cuba. So that's uh, you know, like. BJ Upton has not performed as well as Justin Upton or something like right. There's a big gap between them just because they have the same last name. Uh, but Lourdes, I think, is toolsy and interesting from an athletic standpoint. There's some thought that he could probably play uh, shortstop, third base, or second base, uh, even though he's played some outfield uh, or mostly outfield in Cuba. Um, and you know, like the uh, I, I think. In talking to some people who've seen him, there's some thought that he could maybe be an offensive-minded middle infielder. Uh, I've heard of Johnny Peralta comp. It's kind of like a not a guy you're necessarily going to look at as like a slick fielder, but can make enough plays to to not be terrible up the middle, and you know maybe an above-average hitter or an average hitter. Um, and you know since he's 22, uh, he's going to attract a lot of interest from teams who are. Uh, you know, looking longer term where Yulieski is 31 and probably won't be able to play this year. So his first big league season in the majors will probably be age 32. Uh, you know, that's going to be a shorter term, uh, window, uh, in terms of which teams are going to be interested in acquiring him. Now, what makes him available now? He was, did they just defect? Because I, uh, according to his uh, profile of baseball reference, he played, he played in the, uh, the Japanese league recently. Yeah, so they, they both did, uh, they basically sold themselves as a package deal, and then, uh, Yulieski decided not to, uh, honor the commitment and go last year. I think they, they played there two years ago. Um, and so neither of them went last year. Uh, but right, they just affected last weekend during the Caribbean series, I believe, uh, when Cuba was there. Uh, and it was a little bit unexpected in that, like, the Guriel family is kind of, uh, the, the royal family of Cuban baseball and, uh, Yulieski has kind of publicly stated before that he wanted to play in Major League Baseball, but only with the official sanction of the government. And since, you know, their relations are being normalized between the two, it was thought that it wouldn't be that long before there would be some kind of official, uh, agreement between the United States, Cuba, and Major League Baseball on how Cuban players could come directly here without having to sneak off the island and defect and go to a third country. Um, and I think the assumption was always going to be that, uh, Yulieski would essentially wait for that to happen and then kind of come over at the end of his career. But I think with Major League Baseball actively pushing and stating that they want an international draft and that probably being part of the next CBA, he might have realized this is his last chance to get paid. Like if they're going to set up some kind of system where, you know, Major League Baseball has to pay the Cuban government somehow, which the U.S. government will have to sign off on. But assuming that the Cuban government's not going to just let these players go for nothing, then we have some kind of potentially posting fee type system where uh, whatever money would go to the player is going to be split with the team 
or split with the country in this in this regard. Um, and and probably he wouldn't have the right to negotiate with all 30 teams. It's certainly going to be a more restrictive system if Major League Baseball has their way. So getting off the island before that gets put in place was probably his last chance to get a significant paycheck. Right. Okay. And also, uh, of course, he's 31. So right. Uh, he's, there's also a, a time window. But I mean, that time window has been clicking, ticking for years. Why he decided to go now versus you know a couple of years ago um, when he was you know 29 in his peak probably could have gotten an even larger contract. It would seem like it might be related to the to the idea that Major League Baseball is uh, publicly talking about an international draft, and um, you know, for Cuban players, this is probably their, their last, most likely their last chance to get kind of unrestricted free agency and get whatever the market will pay them. Now, I, I've I've had these conversations with Kyle before on the program, and you know what he brought up, and it seems to make a lot of sense to me, is the fact that the difficulty with an international draft is that you're dealing with a number of countries. Uh, all of which have varying degrees of uh, – the, the uh, relationships have varying degrees of warmth with the United yeah. States, mm-hmm. and uh, they may not be particularly keen on cooperating. Right. Um, uh, for example, Venezuela mm-hmm. is a country from which a lot of baseball players hail. Uh, but uh, in that, you know, just uh, coordinating it, it would be – is a major undertaking, it, it would seem. So what is the plan for, for making it work? Yeah, that – I think that's the big question, right, is, like, how many carve-outs are you going to have to put in this thing? It's one thing to say, like, yeah, we're going to have an international draft for, the, like, the two guys from Italy who come over every decade or the, you know, uh, guys from, you know, Honduras, like these smaller uh, countries who don't really have a lot of leverage. But when you have NPB already essentially has their own carve-out, uh, not that there's an international draft, but, you know, the posting system from Major League Baseball and the Japanese leagues is distinctly different from everything else. And I think the Cuban League is going to want something like that, and the Mexican League is going to want something like that, and the Korean Leagues are going to want something like that. None of them are likely to just go along with Major League Baseball's desire to say, okay, we're going to take our, all your best players in an orderly fashion uh, on our <laughs> timeline, uh, according to our calendar and our season, and you're just going to let, let us have them. So you're going to have to like pay these leagues and pay these teams in order to release their players. Uh, and how that's going to work, because the Cuban season is not the same time as the Japanese season, which is not the same time as the Major League season, uh, and it's not the same time as the college season, right? So if you're trying to have, like, one unified draft where everything happens all at once, I have no idea when this thing is going to take place. So probably you're looking at two drafts, most likely a a domestic draft and an international draft taking place at separate times. Uh, But even then, trying to get uh, all of the logistics and all of the incentives for all of these different countries in place – it's going to be very challenging, especially with, you know, like the United States government is going to want a say in how much money Major League Baseball is funneling to the Cuban government. And so, like, now you have a significant political issue at play. And same thing with Venezuela. Like, you can't just, like, send a whole bunch of money to countries that we're not super good terms with in terms of political relations and have the government be like, yeah, that's fine. Send $100 million to Hugo Chavez. We don't care. But well, uh, the late Hugo Chavez. But right, yeah. I mean, I guess sending, they wouldn't care if he sent it to Hugo <laughs> Chavez because you know whatever is sticking the ground. But. So, so but now these but um, teams organizations are signing players from Venezuela. So what's what's the what's the difference? Is it, so there's, is it there's a difference between if you're giving it to someone who came from that country, who's going to live in America, pay taxes in America, and spend that money in America, versus just shipping a briefcase of cash to the government of that country who can use it however they want. Uh, so I think the, the United States government is much more willing to let major league teams give 
money to people who came from countries which we have questionable relationships with, <laughs> they're less likely to just want us to fund those governments directly. Yeah. And how, how are we funding them? Why do we have to pay the government? We can't just... And if you're the Cuban government, which essentially owns uh, uh, the, right. the, the, the players who play there, why on earth would you let U.S. Gurriel leave for nothing? I don't know. You probably would want something. You're going to want something, yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, that seems uh, that seems like uh, everyone's just being reasonable at that point. But yeah. It's difficult. Think... So, what's the solution, uh, Dave? Cameron? What's your big What's your big plan? So, I don't really have a big plan because I think this is a really tough nut to crack. Uh, I do think that there is an argument to be made for accepting the fact that uh, a draft is not the best way to funnel talent into into baseball. I think the, it's problematic because Major League Baseball actually kind of likes their domestic draft, and it works fine. There's much fewer or many fewer uh, logistical issues with, with kind of drafting American players uh, who go through high school and graduate at the same time. And, and now uh, there's like a whole, like for prep players, a whole showcase circuit right. designed yeah. essentially. So the, the domestic draft is kind of an established thing that baseball is pretty happy with, I think. Um, so they're not going to blow that up. But I do think that there's an argument to be made that says – the draft process itself is not the most efficient way of handling this. And if we removed the draft process entirely, which Major League Baseball is going to be loath to consider and probably just stopped listening to the podcast after I said that. But if they were willing to say, okay, let's just scrap the idea of drafts in general and give teams some kind of firm, uh, capped spending allocation that they could use to sign players not currently under contract to their organization – um, then you could potentially have a little bit more flexibility in how they go about acquiring players. Uh, and you could potentially avoid some of the logistical issues if it's like, you know, if you have to, if a team wants Julius Caguriel and the Cuban government wants $10 million for the right to do it, instead of Major League Baseball saying, okay, we're going to set up a, you know, an exact posting process with every different league or we're going to set up some kind of funding thing, they can potentially leave it to the teams and say, lucky, you have to, essentially acquire the player, uh, kind of like how we sell players to the Japanese leagues now. Like, you know, the Japanese team buys a player uh, who's maybe not good enough to be a, a regular Major League Baseball for, you know, a million dollars or two million dollars, something like that. They just make a direct payment. We could potentially do something in reverse where, you know, the Dodgers want Ulyaski Guriel. They call up the whichever Cuban team has him or the Cuban government or whoever has the rights. I mean, you still have to work out that political issue. Uh, but you say, okay, fine, we're going to pay you $20 million to release the rights to this player. And you set up a maybe a different system than funneling them into free agency and then open market bidding. Right. And so and, – and, and you would extend this to amateurs in the United States as well. In my world, yes. I, I actually think that the draft is not necessary if you can have um, firm spending caps that can't be exceeded. Uh, then I think you could actually do without the draft. My sense is that this is – whether it, it's plausible or not, uh, it's more interesting, right? I, yeah. Because then you have – then you can observe – uh, how the sort of choices that teams make, where they will invest their money, and uh, they're not – they have obviously some of the constraints. But one of the silly things about the draft, right, is that it, even if you want to give money to someone, you can't because you because um, as soon as a player is, is selected by another team, they've obtained exclusive bargaining rights with that player. 
Right. It, so the draft reduces freedom for both the team and the player. So like if you're the team who, in looking at the players, says we are the highest on Mike Trout in this draft. Like everyone's seen Mike Trout. Everyone agrees that this is a good prospect. But we're the highest on him. If you're not picking uh, ahead of a team who's high enough on him to pick a, him ahead of you, that doesn't matter. Your evaluation of him uh, is irrelevant because you just don't get the opportunity. In an auction style where everyone is available, you could say, look, I like Mike Trout. I'm going to bid more than everyone else and uh, be willing to not sign maybe any other good prospects this time because I'm going to allocate all of my uh, resources to signing this one guy because I think that the league is missing out on this potential Mickey Mantle. And so if there was a team out there that was convinced that Mike Trout was what he, you know, this <laughs> or something close to this, uh, and but they were just happened to be picking behind the Angels. They didn't have the opportunity to kind of make that allocation. Where in an auction system, they would have been able to make that. So I think giving teams more flexibility and giving the player more flexibility. I mean, like I think if you're a pitcher and you get selected by the Colorado Rockies, that sucks for you. <laughs> and, uh, there's nothing you can do about that, and that probably ruins your career, or at least is significantly damaging to your career. And should we really be forcing? Talented pitchers who worked really hard to have like you know a lot of success at the professional level into an environment where it's probably going to destroy them. I, right. I don't know that we should. Or if you were a, a player with uh, any semblance of plate discipline selected by the Seattle Mariners of the last five years. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't so good. But I don't think you could have necessarily seen that coming, right? Like I don't think that we expect an eighteen-year-old to be like Jack Zarensic is going to ruin me. <laughs> <laughs> right. But this, you're talking about they could they would at least have a power to. Uh, now, would that create, would that create, it seems as though there's a lot more going on in that particular case. Uh, there's more logistical difficulties. So, so I would say there's not as many logistical difficulties. The problem is, uh, and I think the, the probably the most common counter argument I've heard towards just hard slotting with no draft picks is that you, uh, set up a system where teams are potentially incentivized to get around the hard caps with promises of future extensions or promotions or something uh, outside the guidelines of just the signing bonus, right? So, like, if you have Bryce Harper and, you know, everyone agrees that Bryce Harper is worth your entire pool. And so, you know, the team with the, the largest pool that winner, let's say, has $20 million. But the Yankees have $11 million. So they are $9 million behind Bryce Harper or behind the top bidding team, they have to figure out some way in order to get Bryce Harper to take $9 million less. They can potentially say, like, hey, look, once you've been in our system for two years, we'll give you a 10-year, $200 million extension or something. And it's uh, very difficult to police those kinds of off-the-books promises. And I think that's one of the concerns is that teams with significant financial incentives would figure out a way to uh, make non-monetary promises that, don't show up in the signing pool allocation, uh, and they would just get the best talents. Uh, but I think the, what would Bryce Harper do though in that case if they agreed off of? They said uh, we'll give you two, yeah ten years, two hundred million dollars. But what if they did? They proceeded not to do that. Yeah, I mean I think that's one of the things. Like if you're if you can't put it in writing and you can't. Uh, enforce it because it's an, it's an illegal agreement against the CBA. Uh, you essentially have to hide that. So you can't do it when you're in double A and you can't do it if he's slumping and you can't do it if he's injured. And you can only do it in a scenario in which it doesn't look weird that you signed this guy to a $200 million contract. Well, then maybe he was worth more than that anyway. And so, um, I do think that with representation, uh, players would be able to make more, um, 
uh, they would just be able to make better decisions. And they would say, you know what, I'm just going to take my $9 million now, and if the Yankees want to pay me $200 million in a few years, they can trade for me when I'm worth that. And then they can extend me. And so I do think we should give uh, the players and their advisors a little bit more credit that they wouldn't just be bamboozled uh, into doing these kind of illegal off-the-books uh, transactions, which, uh, to be fair, a lot of these happen uh, not to the extension uh uh, not the idea that we just suggested, but like there's a lot of underhanded off the books deals being struck in the international market right now. So if Major League Baseball is like, ah, we just really, we don't want all these like, uh, shady secondhand backroom dealings going on. Well, I mean, the international market right now is like the shadiest backroomiest uh, possible <laughs> thing you can imagine. So they already have that. Uh, I think their worry is they can extend that to everyone. Uh, but I think like with a, um, a little bit more transparency and firm signing caps and maybe some more enforcement of the rules, uh, they could maybe cut down on that uh, and make, make life both internationally and domestically less shady. Okay. Well, good luck to them. Also, Cameron, you know what you've done is to uh, satis- satisfy your obligation? Fulfill your fulfill. obligation. Yeah, fulfill. Yeah, yeah, you've fulfilled it. So there you go. All right. A little late this week, but uh, I think we both yeah. I was traveling. You were... Well, you were interviewing your grandfather. I was, yeah. Yeah. Not actually 95 yet, not to the beginning of March, but the last one was called 94 and the one before. So you just decided to perpetuate a lie? Yeah, well, I figure most people won't listen to it until he's actually turned 95 anyway. Or they just won't listen to it. Well, there's that too, and they'll never know. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think about that? Maybe next year you could be like, interview with my 700-year-old dragon. And then like, if they don't listen, what, they won't know? They won't know. Yeah. Hmm. Do- <clears throat> Uh, wait, it doesn't have to be... It doesn't matter the age of a dragon if you're interviewing a dragon. Well, I think the you know, an older dragon probably has more interesting stories than a younger dragon. Like, a younger dragon is just going to eat you. But right. an older dragon might have learned, like, hey, I should actually talk to this guy. Yeah? Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> well, let's carry this uh, conversation about dragons off air. Uh, for the moment, though, I'll thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right, that has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. 